Ms. Nemeth Parker? Stephanie Nemeth Parker? Fifteen seconds to curtain, Ms. Nemeth Parker. Thank you, Scooter. I'll be right there. Seriously, though, I have got to get a better agent. <laughs> Hi-ho, and welcome again to the <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> wow. Had a frog in my throat for a moment there. Let's try this again. Cue music. Welcome to the Mayorzine, a weekly audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction curated and no longer exclusively narrated by me, your host, Chris Mayer. Merry Christmas! Only six days from now is my favorite holiday of the year. I myself am not terribly religious, but there is a lot to Christmas that still applies, even if you remove Jesus from the equation. And honestly, it's not really his birthday anyway. The date of December 25th was established in the 4th century as a PR move by the Catholic Church to pull in and convert more pagans by turning the winter solstice into a Catholic holiday among other less cynical but still carefully contrived reasons. But that doesn't mean it's any less special or meaningful. Christmas to me is about family, both in the immediate and the wider sense of community and humanity. It's about celebrating each other. At its core, it's simply about love. You don't need a tree or lights or even presents to celebrate Christmas. You just need love in your heart and people to share it with. Yeah, it's hokey, but it's also true. So with that in mind, I picked out two stories that I feel really capture the spirit of Christmas. One of them is a classic, and you've probably seen it adapted in some form, especially if you grew up with the Sesame Street Christmas special like I did. It'll be read later by my dear friend Stephanie Nemeth Parker, and I'm so very happy I get to share this issue with her. But first, we're going back to Maryvale. We had a lot of fun with the boys during Halloween, so I figure why not see what they're up to for Christmas as well. Let's join Toad, Chuck, Reddy, Fat, and the rest of the gang for a Christmas celebration in Maryvale. Christmas Holidays at Maryvale by Alice Hale Burnett Chapter 1 Toad's Wish Hurrah! shouted Reddy. School is out and no more lessons for two weeks. And he threw his cap into the air. Let's go home by the way of the village so we can look into Daddy Williams' toy shop, suggested his friend Thomas Brown, better known as Toad, who ran up to join him. All right agreed Reddy, and I'll show you what I want for Christmas. And they started down the street. Looks as though it might snow by night, said Toad. Don't you wish there would be a big one? Then we could get all the boys together and have a battle. It's the best fun I know of next to swimming in the creek, was the answer. Here we are, he cried a few minutes later, and both boys stopped in front of a small shop window that looked very gay with a wonderful display of Christmas toys. See those skates hanging up by that sled? That's the kind I want, pointed out Reddy. You screw them right into the heels of your shoes, and you bet they can't ever come off. 
They're fine, agreed Toad. But look at that engine and train. It goes right through the tunnel and up over the bridge. I wonder how fast it can run. That's a dandy mitt there, said the other, pointing to a baseball outfit. I wouldn't be afraid to stop any kind of a ball with that on. Wish my dad would get me a new sled like that flyer, sighed Toad. I finished mine last winter when I ran into that tree with you and Herbie on board. You surely did, was the laughing answer. I remember how we all went flying headfirst into a snowdrift. There's a nice pocket knife, was Toad's next remark. I mean the one with the pearl handle, just next to that doll with the pink dress on. Oh, exclaimed Reddy, here's what just suits me, catching sight for the first time of a punching bag. How do you work it? Why, you see there's an elastic rope on each end of it, and one of them you tie to a ring in the floor, and the other to something overhead. Then when you give it a punch, it comes back to you with a bang. Well, I'd rather have a football. Then maybe we could get up a regular team, remarked Toad. I bet all those reels would cost about ten dollars ventured the other, pointing to a box of marbles toward the front of the window. If I was rich, I'd buy them. What for? You have plenty. You won nearly all mine away from me. Look, he added in a low voice. There goes Herbie's mother into the store. Let's see what she buys. Hello, Daddy, greeted both the boys, as old Mr. Williams, with his white hair, red cheeks, and dancing blue eyes, came to the doorway of the shop and smiled at them. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, he replied. Have you been good boys? I should say we have, cried Toad. Everybody's good before Christmas. Well, run along home then, and I'll tell your ma's just what you want, promised Daddy. Herbie's ma's in here now, and she doesn't want you boys to know what she buys. All right, answered Reddy. Don't forget to say I want a punching bag and a pair of skates. And I want a new sled, chimed in Toad as they both started off. Shucks, I didn't see half the things, did you? protested Reddy. Oh, well, we can come down again this afternoon, was the cheering answer. Come on over to my house anyway, he called as they parted. Chapter 2 The Snow Fight By evening, the snow that Toad and Reddy had so eagerly awaited had come, and by morning many inches had fallen. A crowd of boys had gathered on the Browns' lawn, for the news of a snow battle had carried far. First chooser, cried Charlie Brown, a happy-faced boy who bore the name of Chuck among his friends. Second, shouted Reddy, and when the sides were chosen, Toad found himself with Herbie, a boy with whom he played very often, and four others on Reddy's side. It was then decided by the choosers, who were also the captains, to build two forts ten yards apart, and a half hour was agreed upon as time enough in which to do the work. We must hurry, Reddy told the boys he had chosen. And I think, he added in a low voice, three of us had better build the fort while the other three make snowballs, as we want a lot on hand so we won't have to stop firing to make them. Work fast, he ordered, as he selected two of them to help him build the fort. Toad piled up great heaps of snow while Reddy and Herbie packed it down with wooden spades into a wall which curved like a new moon. How are the snowballs getting on, boys? asked Toad of the three boys who were working hard making them. We're stacking them up so they'll be easy to get at, answered one. They're good hard ones, said another. It's fine packing snow. We're going to have plenty, too, laughed the third. 
Wonder what that's doing, cried Reddy. He's bringing a pail of water from the house. Frank, called fat by the other boys because of his size, was Reddy's older brother. I wonder, mused Toad. He's pouring it on the walls of their fort. Oh, don't you see? He added a moment later. It's to make it freeze. Let's do that too, proposed Herbie. I'll get the water. And he started for the house. Ten minutes later, the walls of the fort were like a solid mass of ice, and the snowballs were inside in four heaps, so all were anxious for the fun to begin. Chapter 3 The Victory Hey, Captain of the Enemy! shouted Chuck from the other fort. Are you ready? All ready, came the answer. Fire! A storm of snowballs flew through the air, and Reddy barely had time to duck his head as they whizzed by. Looks as though they had plenty of balls, too, exclaimed Toad, hastily picking up an armful and running outside to get within closer range. I don't think so, protested Herbie. I could see all of them working on the fort. We have lots more, I'm sure. Well, cried the captain, let everybody take a pile of snowballs and we'll run out together and maybe we can drive them from their fort. Each boy carried as many as he could in one arm, this leaving the other one free to throw with. We'll have to make a quick run for it and throw just as fast and hard as we can, said Herbie, as Toad, who had at that moment returned to the fort in a great hurry, his hat covered with snow, exclaimed, They got me, but I hit two or three of them. Already, shouted the captain, and the others, following close on his heels, dashed out. Such a hail of snowballs met them that they halted for a moment, then dashed onward right up to the enemy's fort. Don't waste any ammunition until you get close, ordered Reddy, and his company obeyed. Now let her fly, he directed, as they surrounded the fort. The boys threw with a will and were vigorously answered by the defenders of the fort, and for a time it was hard to see which side would win. Finally, after the ammunition of the attacking force was used up, Captain Reddy ordered a retreat back to their own fort. I have a better plan this time, he announced after they were safely inside. When we charge again, two of you fellows must keep running back to our own fort so as to bring us supplies of snowballs. Then we can keep up a much longer fight, and when anyone gets tired throwing, he added, he can change places with one of the fellows that have been carrying the balls. At this moment, Herbie, who had been on the lookout, suddenly cried, They're coming to charge us! Get ready to give it to them, ordered the captain, and each boy, snatching up an armful of snowballs, prepared to repel the attack. Fire! Reddy shouted as the enemy drew near, and when they met that rain of balls, it didn't take them long to get back to the cover of their own fort. That was great! cried Herbie. Come on, let us charge this time before they have a chance to get ready for us. Hey, I'm the captain, insisted Reddy. Nobody gives any orders but me. And he pulled his woolen cap well down over his ears in preparation for the coming attack. Well, hurry up and give them then, shouted Toad. I'm all loaded up. Charge, charge on, shouted Reddy, starting out on the run with the others close upon his heels. And after a few minutes of hard fighting, they had forced their way to the walls of the fort. The balls were flying so thick and so fast from both sides that it looked like a snowstorm of enormous flakes shooting in all directions. The boys carrying balls to supply the invaders were kept busy, but before long it was noticed that there were fewer coming from inside the fort. They've used up all they have, shouted Toad. Let's get closer. Close in, 
cried Captain Reddy, and aim well. In another minute, you could plainly tell that each of the enemy, after throwing one snowball, had to stop long enough to make another one, and this was the time for which Captain Reddy had been waiting. Charge the walls, he ordered, and with wild cries the boys dashed forward. Up over the walls they went, and once inside, the victory was easily won, for the boys inside the fort were empty-handed and couldn't defend themselves. We win! We win! exclaimed Toad, throwing his hat into the air. Three cheers for Captain Reddy! Hurrah! shouted all the boys. Chapter 4 Chuck's Rude Awakening The day before Christmas dawned bright and cold. Mother Brown, who had been up early, made some wonderful Christmas pies and a pudding before Toad and Chuck were awake. It was eight o'clock before Toad opened one eye. What's the use of getting up? he thought. I'm so warm and comfortable here in bed. My, but something smells awfully good. Wonder if it's breakfast. Suddenly he sat up straight in bed. Look at that lazy thing, he declared. Bet he'd sleep until noon if I'd let him, and with all we have to do today. Chuck continued to snore peacefully. But I won't. I'll have some fun, thought Toad, as quietly, with as little noise as possible. He crept from his bed to the basin in one corner of the room. It took him only a few seconds to wet a large sponge with cold water, then creeping very carefully back to the foot of Chuck's bed, he took careful aim. The sponge flew through the air true to its mark and landed kersplash on Chuck's tousled brown head. What's the matter? spluttered Chuck, sitting up and blinking his eyes. Then, as he felt the water trickling down his cheeks and caught sight of Toad, doubled up with laughter, he jumped out of bed and running across the room he pushed Toad flat on his back on the bed and sat upon his chest. Let me up, pleaded Toad. I couldn't help it. You looked so sweet. What'll you give me if I do? laughed Chuck. You've got to pay for that smart trick before I let you up. Nothing, gasped Toad, trying very hard to free himself. Oh-ho, laughed Chuck. You won't, eh? Well, he added, I don't mind sitting here all day. I'm real comfortable. At this moment, there came a knock at the door, and before either of the boys could answer, Father Brown entered. What's up? he inquired. Toad hit me in the face with a wet sponge while I was asleep, explained Chuck, and he's going to give me something for it. Then why are you sitting on him? asked Father. Because he says he won't, replied Chuck with a grin. I suppose you'll have to pay up, Thomas, laughed Father. Anyway, I hope you'll both be down to breakfast soon, he added, before all the cakes are gone. I have a terrible appetite this morning. And with those words, he left the room. Do you give up now? asked Chuck. No, sir, persisted Toad. Remember what he said about the cakes. They'll be hot ones with lots of maple syrup, teased Chuck. Well, you're missing them too, retorted Toad. I guess I'll let you off this time relented Chuck. But if you ever do it again, he threatened, I'll hold you down for a week, cakes or no cakes. You'd starve to death in that time, argued Toad, with a laugh as he commenced to hurry into his clothing. The boys were seated at the table a half hour later and had just eaten the last of the griddle cakes when Reddy's whistle was heard. Toad, jumping up from the table, ran over to the window and beckoned to Reddy to come into the house. What are you going to do this morning? 
was Reddy's first remark as he entered the room. We're going for Christmas greens, and Dad's going to cut our tree from away up on the hillside, Toad told him. And, he added, we're going to take one of the horses with us to drag it home. Oh, that's great, replied Reddy. Do you start soon? Don't you want to go too? asked Chuck. And maybe we can get fat and Herbie too, he added. If such a crowd goes and everybody gathers greens, laughed Toad, what will we ever do with all of them? Mother Brown answered him from the doorway. Why not take some of them to the church? I'm sure the ladies who are trimming it will be glad to use all that you can give them. That's a splendid idea, declared Father Brown, rising from his seat by the fireplace. Come, boys, bundle up well, because it's going to be a cold drive. I'll run ahead to get the others, called Chuck as he hurried from the room. Chapter 5 The Adventure in the Snow I'm glad we brought the sleigh, Father Brown remarked as they were driving along at a fair pace a little later, as we never could have gotten through with a wagon in this deep snow. They were now starting up the hill, and the horse's feet sank deeply into the snowdrifts, although his load was not heavy as the boys took turns walking so that only two of them were riding at a time. When we reach the first clearing, Father proposed, we'll cut the greens and then leave them in a pile by the roadside, for it is likely we shall have to go up still higher before we can find the tree we want. After going on a few yards more, he shouted, Here's the place! All hands to work! And the boys started in with a will, bringing to the roadside great heaps of boughs and woodvines, some of them covered with red berries and others with gray. Within a short time, they had gathered a large pile of the greens, so they decided it was time to start out to find the tree. The tree must be full and the top perfect, declared Father Brown, so keep your eyes open for it. What's the matter with that one? demanded Toad, pointing to a big fir some distance away. Nothing at all the matter with it, laughed Chuck, only the house is too small to hold it. There's a nice one, called out Herbie, pointing to the one he meant. Yes, that's a beauty, agreed Father Brown, and easy to get at, too. After clearing away the smaller branches near the ground by chopping them off with the axe, Father Brown then started to work on the trunk of the tree. Wouldn't it be nice, suggested Fat, if we didn't have to cut it down at all? Just trim it outside? It would save so much time and trouble. Oh, yes, that would be great, agreed Reddy. We'd just sit around on the snow eating ice cream and look at the tree and he gave a hearty laugh in which all the others joined. Well, I bet they'd do it in Greenland and Iceland, persisted Fat. So why couldn't we? Because we don't wear white polar bear clothes, laughed Chuck. There she comes! She's falling! cried the boys. Stay where you are until it's down, called Father Brown to the boys. There was a sharp creak and a swish of branches as the tree came down, and the boys now rushed over to help tie up the branches. When that part of the work was finished, Reddy sang out, All together, lift her on the sled. One, two, three, and up it went. Nobody gets a ride home, called out Chuck, because the greens have to go on top of the tree. Oh, wailed Fat. If I can't ride, I'll roll down. I hate to walk. By the time they had reached the fields, the worst part of the trip was over. We'll cut over to the road that runs past the church, said Father Brown, and leave some of the greens there, at which the horse was headed in that direction. 
As they came to the road, they saw a short distance from them an object in the snow, and as they drew nearer, it proved to be a little fellow, deep in a snowdrift. His hands were blue with the cold, and as Father Brown picked him up in his arms, he tried to speak, but couldn't. I know who he is, volunteered Herbie. He's Patsy O'Reilly, and he lives over there, pointing to a small house up the road. His brother Mike goes to school with me, he continued. I'll carry him home, said Father, as you boys are able to handle things all right now. Saying which, he started off to the little house with Patsy in his arms. Chuck, to whom Father Brown had handed the reins, now started to drive the horse toward home. When the boys arrived at the church and had carried in the greens, the ladies were delighted, and one of them even tried to kiss Reddy, but he hurried away just in time. Chapter 6 Toad's Unselfishness When they reached home, Chuck drove the sleigh up to the side door, where the boys quickly unloaded the greens. They then lifted the tree to the piazza, and when this had been done, Chuck drove the horse to the stable. Let's go in and get our hands warm before we take in the greens, suggested Toad, and soon they were all laughing and talking before the great fire in the library. Fat had just asked the others if they remembered the day Mr. Brown had told them about the Indians that used to live in the woods where they found the tree when a man's voice was heard from the hall. It's going to be a sad Christmas for them, I'm afraid for both parents are ill, and the three helpless children are waiting for Santa Claus to come, the boys heard Father Brown say. How sad, was Mrs. Brown's answer, as they both went into the kitchen, and the boys could hear no more. They must be talking about the O'Reillys, commented Fat. Mike's a friend of mine, and I'm sorry he isn't going to have any Christmas. So am I, echoed Herbie, after a short silence. Chuck said he'd hate to awaken Christmas morning and not find any presents. Guess I've been mighty selfish wanting so many things, he thought. Toad and Reddy, who had moved away from the other boys, were talking together in low, excited whispers. Then, when the others went to the window to look at the green outside, they slipped from the room and hurried down the hall to the kitchen. Mother, called Toad from the doorway, may we speak to you for a minute? Mother Brown handed the bowl in which she had been stirring something to the cook and crossed the room toward the boys, saying as she did so, I can only spare a few minutes today, Thomas, for I am very busy. But mother, exclaimed Toad, we have a great idea. It's a surprise Christmas party, chimed in Reddy, for the O'Reillys. And together the two boys went on to tell Mrs. Brown of their plans. If we could just have the horse and sleigh to get around in, ventured Toad. Do you think father would allow us to hitch old Meg to the big sleigh? It's a wonderful idea, agreed Mother Brown. Suppose you ask him. But how about presents for the three children? Have you thought of that? If it were only after Christmas, we could give away some of our new things, sighed Toad. But would you give them away? asked his mother. Supposing you were going to get a sled, the kind you have been wanting. And she paused to hear Toad's answer. He thought very hard for a moment, then answered, Yes, because I always get a lot of things and it might be the only present Mike would get. Well, remarked his mother, I have bought you a sled, and you may give it to him. Reddy looked at Toad as Mother Brown turned toward the kitchen. Are you sorry now that you said yes? he asked. No, I'm not, returned Toad. Well, I'll ask Mother to let me give them something new of mine, too. 
declared Reddy consolingly, putting his arm about Toad's shoulder. Chapter 7 The Boys Plan a Surprise At two o'clock the sleigh was ready, for Father Brown had willingly given the boys permission to use it that afternoon. It was planned to have Chuck drive, for Toad, Reddy, Fat, and Herbie expected to be too busy calling at the different houses to gather the presents which they hoped to collect for the O'Reillys. Let's stop at Bailey's first, suggested Fat, as we're sure to get something there. Who'll go to the door? questioned Herbie. I'll go, answered Chuck. That's the best way. So in a group, they rang the bell and waited, Chuck remaining in the sleigh. No one came in answer to the ring. All out, sighed Fat. But Toad gave the bell another pull. Bet they're all in the kitchen baking things and didn't hear it, he remarked. There's someone coming now, whispered Reddy. And as the door opened, Good afternoon, said all the boys in chorus. Mercy upon us, where did you all come from? exclaimed Mrs. Bailey. And as Toad held forth a card that Father Brown had printed for them, she asked, Am I to read this? Yes, Mrs. Bailey, that explains everything, Reddy told her. She read, In one little home there may be no Christmas cheer. The father and mother are both ill. There are three children, a boy of nine years, another of five, and a girl of seven. They need coal, clothing, food, and toys. What will you give? So you're all playing at being Santa Claus, remarked Mrs. Bailey with a smile. Well, I believe I can find something that will please you, so just stop in on your way back and I'll have it all ready for you. Oh, thank you, cried all the boys together as they started for the sleigh, happy over the success of their first call. Have any luck? asked Chuck. But I can see you did because you're all grinning, he added, as they told him what Mrs. Bailey had promised. After several more visits, with the promise of something from each place if they would call later, Herbie proposed that they stop at Mrs. Lee's home, as Mary Lee had a great many dolls and might give them one of them for the little O'Reilly girl. That's a good idea, they all agreed, and the idea was carried out. When Mrs. Lee had read the card, she asked the boys if there was anything they needed that had not been promised. We wondered, replied Herbie, if Mary would give us a doll for that little girl. Mrs. Lee smiled and said, I think I can promise you that she will. If you will call later, it will give me a chance to get her. We'll be glad to, promised the boys, and thank you. At five o'clock, a sleigh piled high with bundles and boys was seen turning into the Browns' driveway. What do we do now? asked Toad of the others. Let's drive into the barn and leave the things in the sleigh, suggested Chuck. Then we can meet here early tonight and take the things to the O'Reilly's. All right, assented the others. What time shall we meet? At seven o'clock, said Toad. Chapter 8 What Mike Found After dinner that night, Chuck and Toad spent a little time helping to trim the big tree that had been put in place in the library during their absence of the afternoon. Chuck was on the top of a stepladder, tying shiny-colored balls to the upper branches, when Toad, who had been busy with candy canes and popcorn balls, suddenly stopped and looked at the clock on the mantel. It's seven o'clock, Chuck, he cried, and the others will be wondering why we don't come out. And at this, he ran into the hall to get into his coat and cap. Chuck took but a second to follow Toad out into the yard to meet the boys. 
Mother Brown had sent her bundle and Toad's new sled to the barn by John, the stableman, who put them into the sleigh with the other things while the boys were at dinner. Hello, boys! Everybody here? inquired Toad as he joined the group of boys in front of the barn. All but fat, laughed Reddy, and he'll be along in a minute. He said I walked too fast for him. Is everything in the sleigh? asked Herbie as John was hitching up. Everything's in all right, Toad assured him. When about to start, they found that the sleigh was so full of bundles that some of the boys had to stand on the runners. Just as they reached the street, Fat was seen coming toward them. Hurry up, lazy bones, called Reddy, or you'll get left. But John good-naturedly stopped the horse until Fat had climbed aboard. There was a full moon, and the sky was bright with stars. The snow was hard beneath the horse's feet, which made the going easy, so they traveled along at a brisk pace. Where shall I stop? asked John as they drew near the O'Reilly's cottage. Just a little this side of the house, directed Toad, so they won't hear us. All off now, ordered Reddy, as John pulled up the horse, and help unload. Don't let's make any more noise than we can help. We can pile everything on the front steps, whispered Herbie, as the boys, each heavily laden with packages of all sizes and shapes, walked very quietly up the path toward the house. Each carefully placed his bundles or boxes where Herbie had suggested, and just as silently, they now returned to the sleigh. Suppose someone comes along and takes all the things before they get up in the morning, argued Fat. I don't think it's safe to leave them there all night, do you? Well, maybe we'd better throw some snowballs at the door, proposed Chuck, to bring them out now. This was accepted as a good plan, and bang, bang, bang went the balls against the door. The sleigh, in which the boys took refuge, was well hidden behind a pine tree, so they could not be seen from the house. There's a light, said Reddy in a low voice. Someone is opening the door. It's Mike, answered Herbie excitedly. I'll bet he can't believe his eyes. It did seem to the others that what Herbie said was true. For, framed in the doorway of the cottage, stood a boy, gazing at a great heap of bundles and boxes on the steps before him, as if dazed. Once he rubbed his eyes as if to make sure he was awake, then he slowly stretched out one hand toward the beautiful new sled, hardly daring to believe it was real. Then suddenly, as the boys watched eagerly, the sled was in his arms and he was jumping up and down with joy, calling to those of his family who could to come out and see the wonderful surprise. Time for us to be getting home now, whispered Chuck, and Toad, feeling very happy, answered, I guess you're right. By nine o'clock, Chuck and Toad were sound asleep, and the stockings, tied to the end of each bed, fell limp and empty. Chapter 9 Christmas morning. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! shouted Toad. It was seven o'clock, and Chuck awoke with a start and looked around him. Merry Christmas! he answered, and both boys scrambled down to the foot of their beds to untie the stockings full to overflowing with candies, nuts, oranges, and many small gifts. Oh! cried Chuck. See what I have! holding his stocking up by the foot and shaking the contents out on the bed. A big knife and a top and some reels. So have I. By jinx, I'm glad to get the knife. It's a beauty. Three blades. Chuck, who by this time had a whole candy apple in his mouth, could only nod his head in reply. 
Let's hurry up and dress so we can go down to see the tree, proposed Toad. I'll bet there will be lots more things for us down there. And this the boys hastened to do. Merry Christmas, greeted Mother Brown a few minutes later, as the boys, now fully dressed, came to her door. Merry Christmas, boys, called their father from the hall below, as Mother Brown and the boys hurried downstairs. As they entered the library, the very first thing that met Toad's eyes was a beautiful new sled, much larger than the one he had given the night before to Michael O'Reilly. Oh, is that for me? he cried in delight as he pounced upon it. I didn't expect to get one. Yes, my son, answered his father. It is for you. Oh, wait until Reddy sees this. And Toad fairly hopped about in his delight. Chuck was very much excited over a new building game, the very thing he had hoped for, but Toad hardly had time to look at his other gifts from his many aunts and uncles, so anxious was he to go outdoors to try his new sled. After breakfast, Mother Brown helped him into his coat and found his mittens and cap, for they always seemed to run away and hide while Toad slept. Come on, Chuck, he cried. Aren't you coming out? Nope, I'm going to see if I can build a derrick, was the reply so Toad started off alone. As he reached the hill, down which most of the boys liked best to coast, he met Reddy, trudging along with his sled. Hey, Merry Christmas, he shouted. Look at what Dad gave me. Merry Christmas, answered Reddy. Jingos, that's a beauty. Did you get the football you wanted? He was asked. You bet I did, and a punching bag, too. Like the one in Daddy Williams's window? Inquired Toad. Just like it. And when you give it a punch, whack, it comes back at you quick as a flash. What did Fat get? Oh, a lot of books and a pair of ice skates, replied Reddy. So he's gone over to White's Pond to try them. Chuck got his building game. You know, the one he wanted, and he wouldn't come out, declared the Toad in fine disgust. He's making things with it. Who's that just starting? And Reddy pointed up the long hill where someone was getting ready to coast down. Well, if it isn't Mike O'Reilly, he exclaimed, here ahead of us. Then, as the sled with Mike lying flat on it shot past them, they greeted him with a shout. Hello, returned Mike, his face all aglow with joy. Look at what I got for Christmas. Bet you're glad now that you gave it to him, said Reddy, as the two boys reached the top of the hill. Let me go down with you the first trip? You bet, Toad assented. Merry Christmas! Reddy shouted, giving the sled a push from behind. One, two, three, we're off! And down they flew. She's speedy, all right, he declared as the cold north wind stung his cheeks. And she steers like a bird, echoed Toad. The End This next story was originally published in 1905 and has become one of the iconic stories of Christmas. It has been adapted on stage and screen, and some variant of the story has been used in everything from the Honeymooners to Rugrats to the Muppets to Mickey Mouse and, yes, Sesame Street. I grew up with Sesame Street during that wonderful period when network television took a week off and just played 10 zillion Christmas specials. 
I can't even tell you how many times I saw Christmas Eve on Sesame Street, and I consider it one of the best Christmas specials ever made. We eventually managed to tape pretty much all of them, and Christmas was just one long day in front of the TV with VHS tapes of Christmas specials, fast-forwarding through the commercials. Luckily, a lot of them have been preserved in the various streaming services, and I get to continue my tradition of watching Mickey's Christmas Carol on December 25th, which, by the way, was the first animated appearance of Scrooge McDuck. And now, I get to give you the gift of Stephanie Nemeth Parker. The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. And sixty cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it, one dollar and eighty-seven cents, and the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it, which instigates the moral reflection that life is made up of sobs, sniffles, and smiles, with sniffles predominating. While the mistress of the home is gradually subsiding from the first stage to the second, take a look at the home. A furnished flat at $8 per week. It did not exactly beg our description, but it certainly had that word on the lookout for the mendicancy squad. In the vestibule below, was a letterbox into which no letter would go, and an electric button from which no mortal finger could coax a ring. Also appertaining thereunto was a card bearing the name Mr. James Dillingham Young. The Dillingham had been flung to the breeze during a former period of prosperity when its possessor was being paid $30 per week. Now, when the income was shrunk to $20, though, they were thinking seriously of contracting to a modest and unassuming D. But whenever Mr. James Dillingham Young came home and reached his flat above, he was called Jim and greatly hugged by Mrs. James Dillingham Young, already introduced to you as Della, which is all very good. Della finished her cry and attended to her cheeks with the powder rag. She stood by the window and looked out dully at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she had only $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny she could for months, with this result. $20 a week doesn't go far. Expenses had been greater than she had calculated. They always are. Only $1.87 to buy a present for Jim. Her Jim. Many a happy hour she had spent planning for something nice for him. Something fine and rare and sterling. Something just a little bit near to being worthy of the honor of being owned by Jim. There was a pier glass between the windows of the room. 
Perhaps you have seen a pure glass in an $8 flat. A very thin and very agile person may, by observing his reflection in a rapid sequence of longitudinal strips, obtain a fairly accurate conception of his looks. Della, being slender, had mastered the art. Suddenly, she whirled from the window and stood before the glass. Her eyes were shining brilliantly, but her face had lost its color within 20 seconds. Rapidly, she pulled down her hair and let it fall to its full length. Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window someday to dry, just to depreciate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. Had King Solomon been the janitor, with all his treasures piled up in the basement, Jim would have pulled out his watch every time he passed, just to see him pluck at his beard from envy. So now Della's beautiful hair fell about her rippling and shining like a cascade of brown waters. It reached below her knee and made itself almost a garment for her. And then she did it up again nervously and quickly. Once she faltered for a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet. On went her old brown jacket. On went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. Where she stopped, the sign read, Madame Sofrenie, hair goods of all kinds. One flight up, Della ran and collected herself, panting. Madame, large, too white, chilly, hardly looked the Sofrenie. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, said Madame. Take your hat off and let's have a sight at the looks of it. Down rippled the brown cascade. Twenty dollars, said Madame, lifting the mass with a practiced hand. Give it to me quick, said Della. Oh, and the next two hours tripped by on rosy wings. Forget the hashed metaphor. She was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores, and she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design, properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation, as all good things should do. It was even worthy of the watch. As soon as she saw it, she knew that it must be Jim's. It was like him, quietness and value, the description applied to both. $21 they took from her for it, and she hurried home with the 87 cents. With that chain on his watch, Jim might be properly anxious about the time in any company. Grand as the watch was, he sometimes looked at it on the sly on account of the old leather strap that he used in place of a chain. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way a little to prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love, which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls that made her look wonderfully like a truant schoolboy. She looked at her reflection in the mirror long, 
carefully and critically. If Jim doesn't kill me, she said to herself, before he takes a second look at me, he'll say I look like a Coney Island chorus girl. But what could I do? Oh, what could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? At seven o'clock, the coffee was made and the frying pan was on the back of the stove, hot and ready to cook the chops. Jim was never late. Della doubled the fob chain in her hand and sat on the corner of the table near the door that he always entered. Then she heard his step on the stair away down on the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. She had a habit of saying a little silent prayer about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, make him think I am still pretty. The door opened and Jim stepped in and closed it. He looked thin and very serious. Poor fellow, he was only 22, and to be burdened with a family. He needed a new overcoat and he was without gloves. Jim stopped inside the door, as immovable as a setter at the scent of quail. His eyes were fixed upon Della, and there was an expression in them that she could not read, and it terrified her. It was not anger, nor surprise, nor disapproval, nor horror, nor any of the sentiments that she had been prepared for. He simply stared at her fixedly with that peculiar expression on his face. Della wriggled off the table and went for him. Jim, darling, she cried, don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow again. You won't mind, will you? I just had to do it. My hair grows awfully fast. Say Merry Christmas, Jim, and let's be happy. You don't know what a nice, what a beautiful, nice gift I've got for you. You've cut off your hair? Asked Jim, laboriously, as if he had not arrived at that patent fact yet, even after the hardest mental labor. Cut it off and sold it, said Della. Don't you like me just as well anyhow? I'm me without my hair, ain't I? Jim looked about the room curiously. You say your hair is gone, he said, with an air almost of idiocy. You needn't look for it, said Della. It's sold. I tell you, sold and gone, too. It's Christmas Eve, boy. Be good to me, for it went for you. Maybe the hairs of my head were numbered, she went on with sudden serious sweetness. But nobody could ever count my love for you. Shall I put the chops on, Jim? Out of his trance, Jim seemed quickly to wake. He enfolded his Della. For ten seconds, let us regard with discreet scrutiny some inconsequential object in the other direction. Eight dollars a week or a million a year, what is the difference? A mathematician or a wit would give you the wrong answer. The Magi brought valuable gifts, but that was not among them. This dark assertion will be illuminated later on. Jim drew a package from his overcoat pocket and threw it upon the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said, about me. I don't think there's anything in the way of a haircut or a shave or a shampoo that could make me like my girl any less. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. White fingers and nimble tore at the string and paper, and then an ecstatic scream of joy. 
And then, alas, a quick feminine change to hysterical tears and wails, necessitating the immediate employment of all the comforting powers of the lord of the flat. For there lay the combs. The set of combs, side and back, that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims, just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew, and her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now, they were hers. But the tresses that should have adorned the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them to her bosom, and at length, she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a little singed cat and cried, Oh, oh. Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just a present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now, suppose you put the chops on. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. Now before we go, I want to wrap up with one more iconic Christmas classic. Written by Clement Clark Moore as a present for his children, this one has become as integral to Christmas as the tree and needs no introduction. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama, in her kerchief, and I in my cap, had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap, when out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes did appear but a miniature sleigh, 
and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment he must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop the coursers they flew, with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry! His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke, it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Merry Christmas, everybody. Next week wraps up Volume 1 of the Marazine, and it has been a fantastic three months. I feel blessed that I get to bring this to you every week, and I have to say, I'm getting more listeners than I thought I would have this early. I've got a fun theme for next week with a couple more Christmas icons, and I'll explain that omnibus I keep mentioning. If you like the podcast, be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. This production is copyright 2021 by Christopher James Bayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.